Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So my first question comes from the title of one of the chapters of your new book. Why has the Republican Party abandoned democracy? It's a great question because, first of all, it's important to state that uh, this is a really rare phenomenon. Parties that are 150 years old that have been competing in democratic elections for more than a century don't usually go off the rails in this way. This is a very unusual event. Hmm. What we argue in the book, uh, in short, is that America changed dramatically in the latter part of the 20th century, and the Republican Party uh, did not. America became a much more diverse place, and the Republican Party in the late 20th century found itself a white Christian party. And that actually worked wonders electorally for a while in the 1980s and 1990s. But as we entered into the 21st century, two serious problems emerged for the party. Presenting themselves as a white Christian party could no longer win national popular majorities. This is why they lost the popular vote in seven out of eight presidential elections in a row. And the second problem, in addition to to, uh, becoming increasingly uncompetitive at the national level, part of the party's base grew increasingly threatened by a transformed America. There were many, obviously not all, but many Trumpist voters who felt like the country that they grew up in was being taken away from them. And that's that's a pretty serious sense of existential threat. And they radicalized. That's Stephen Levitsky, co-author of the brand new book, Tyranny of the Minority. He's a professor of government and Latin American studies at Harvard University. And we're also joined by his co-author, Daniel Zeblatt, who's also a professor of government at Harvard. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. Today, we're going inside threats to American democracy. Daniel and Stephen wrote the acclaimed 2018 book, How Democracies Die. So now they're back with something of a sequel. Tyranny of the Minority offers a historical look into how we've arrived here when an entire political party seems to have abandoned democratic ideals. Uh, Daniel, we're talking about the GOP abandoning democracy, but just to make sure we have the data points out there so, so no one can challenge that, what, what's the evidence, you know, what, other than you know, January 6th, which stared us all in the face uh, when the riot broke out? What are the other you know, research-based points you can, you can cite to say, here's how we know the party has abandoned democracy as we know it? It's really important to be clear about the criteria because that's a a serious charge to make, of course, of a party in a democratic political system. So, uh, you know, political science has taught us very clearly there's three basic tenets of democratic behavior. If somebody's committed to democracy, a political party or a politician's committed to democracy, loyal to democracy, they they have to do three things. Number one, they have to accept election results, win or lose. Uh, Number two, they have to not use violence to try to gain power or to hold on to power. And then number three, a little bit more complicated, you have to distance yourself from allies who engage in those first two behaviors. So you're saying that as professors, you apply that criteria, not just in the United States, but around the world. Yeah, to to any political party, left or right, in the United States or elsewhere. Hmm. Uh, And when one does that, one can kind of, it's a pretty basic benchmark, but essential. Um, And what worries us about the United States 
is that we see increasingly something we didn't see as much in the past, politicians who violate all three of those criteria. Mm. And that's Donald Trump, obviously, but but also many other Republican politicians. Yeah, well, so the third criteria of you have to distance yourself from allies who engage in the first two uh, uh, violations, you know, not accepting elections or using violence. That I think and so, there's a word, there's a label for that phenomenon, which is uh, that when we describe this in the book of a semi-loyal Democrat, somebody who looks like a mainstream, normal Democratic politician. You may wear a suit and a tie. You don't wear military fatigues. You engage in normal politics. You even may sound like a Democrat at sometimes, but if a politician does fails to distance themselves or, or justifies or excuses the behavior of their allies who deny election results, who engage in violence, then what history teaches us is that it's these actors, these normal-looking politicians who are acting out of career interests, they are the ones ultimately who've gotten democracy into trouble in 1920s, 1930s Europe, and Latin America in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, Stephen, tell me why you all decided to open with not just January 6th, but also January 5th. Right. People forget about the, the day before the riot in 2021. It's the Georgia Senate runoffs. In fact, we didn't actually know the winners until sometime on the day of the 6th. Uh, it turned out the two Democrats uh, beat the two Republicans. But you all you know, put those two events together. For what reason? For a couple of reasons. One is they're causally related. So January 5th for us is uh, representative of the rise of multiracial democracy in the United States here in uh, the, the the deep south, we have the election of an African-American son of a, of a sharecropper uh, and a Jewish American as senators, and which, which to us symbolizes the, the, the promise of 21st century U.S. democracy. We are becoming, and I think we will become, a, a truly established multiracial democracy. But you write in the book that multiracial democracy is hard to achieve. Few societies have ever done it. We're, we're going through the reaction against it right now. I mean, the book's thesis is that the, the extraordinary instability and threat that we are, are as, a, as a society, are going through right now is a reaction against it. This is not the first time in the United States history that we have gone through a violent authoritarian reaction against multiracial democracy. As we show in the book, uh, there was a, a violent authoritarian reaction against Reconstruction uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Steps towards greater inclusion in any society, in any democracy, almost invariably trigger some kind of a conservative authoritarian reaction. Mm. Uh, because when you include new people, new groups, new citizens, somebody's status is going to be threatened. Uh, and in this case, with, with the rise of a truly multiracial democracy gradually over 50 years, but it really began to be felt in the 21st century in the Obama era, um, a number of, of white Christian Americans felt that their longstanding status at the top of the social hierarchy, the social pecking order, was under threat. And that, that radicalized Republicans. So it's hard to have true, genuine, effective inclusion without some kind of reaction. But we... We're not entirely pessimistic about this country's future. Not at all. Uh, we, I came away from the book feeling more optimistic than I expected, to be honest. We think that the country does, uh, that we're clearly headed for a period of instability. It, it could be quite ugly if we don't respond in the right ways. It, 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 we, we, could be, we could be facing some, some difficult times. But I think we're going to come out of this, whether it's in 10 or 20 years, as, a, as a, one of the world's first multiracial democracies. We could actually be the sort of uh, model democracy for other parts of the world that we aspired to be for much of, our, of much of the 20th century. 
So can we imagine a spectrum between democracy and autocracy? Or, you know, and if so, where is the United States currently on that spectrum? Well, the U.S., according to all international indices for, for you know, the last 30 years has been very democratic. Um, you know, there's a group of countries, you know, according to these, there's international organizations, Freedom House and others that rank democracies. The U.S. has been, you know, one of the top democracies in the world, along with democracy, rich democracies of Western Europe, of East Asia. What's so striking really actually is during the Trump years, I mean, this is in some ways one of the motivations of our book, is that among all the established democracies, the U.S. was unique and that it experienced a significant episode of backsliding. The U.S. was rated as less democratic at the end of the Trump years than countries that we normally don't compare ourselves to, Argentina um, and other newer democracies. Uh, so this is, you know, pretty shocking, in fact, I think, to most American self-conception. Um, according to the international indices, we've, we've recovered a bit. But the point is, like, how, you know, how is it that we've become vulnerable to backsliding, which is something that social science teaches us ought not happen among with a rich democracy. So- you know, by by almost all standards, the United States continues to be above the line for a democracy. Nobody would call it an authoritarian regime or not a democracy. But by most measures, it's less democratic than it was a decade ago. And as Daniel pointed out, it's less democratic than many other established democracies in the world. So now that we're a few steps removed from the Trump years, and there have been some, some positive signs in the last couple of years in terms of restoring a healthy democracy— how much of what happened in the Trump years was a, a liberal panic attack versus a real threat? I mean, you, you write about this a little bit in the, in, in the book and acknowledge, you know, that some people felt like, you know, it's just liberals overreacting to the, the danger of Trump, right? Yeah, you know, I think certainly the assault on January 6th should set off alarm bells for everybody. Um, and, you know, when, when you don't have a peaceful transition of power, an uncontested transition of power, that should really set off alarm bells because most democracies, uh, cons- fully consolidated democracies, uh, don't have trouble with that kind of thing. You know, if you think back over the last uh, 20 years, we've had an electoral college victory of George W. Bush where, um, where Al Gore won the popular vote. So in some sense, it was a kind of contested election. Uh, we, the, the 2016 election was a similar kind of outcome. And then in 2020, we had uh, kind of this really real, uh, this all came to a culmination in the fight over uh, the the tr- transition of power to to Joe Biden. So I think that should set off alarm bells. And so it was people were not panicked. People were right to be worried. And I think we need to mm. step back and ask, how is it that we ended up in this situation? That's really what we try to do. And our book is to kind of do a deeper dive to try to understand how could an old rich democracy experience this? There must be something. This is not just a blip. This is not just a kind of momentary detour. It could, it could happen again in 2024. It could happen again. And we need to try to understand why we're vulnerable. We need to do, you know, give ourselves a really hard look in the mirror and say, okay, what, what's going on here? What's happening in America that leaves us in this position? Mm. That gets to the title, Tyranny of the Minority. So let's get into that title and let's talk about lessons from the past in just a moment. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. 
I'm speaking with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zblatt about the brand new book, Tyranny of the Minority. Stephen, in the book, you all draw from many historical parallels to our current moment in time uh, from around the world. So what, what moment from history most closely reflects what we're going through, through in the United States right now and what it can teach us? I would say uh, a moment in our own history, which is the, our, our country's first effort at multiracial democracy. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, there were a series of very important constitutional reforms, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which established the legal foundation for multiracial democracy. I should add multiracial male democracy because women did not have the right to vote. And for a, a handful of years, federal troops, the federal government, uh, enforced those constitutional reforms almost overnight. In a matter of, of, of months, the vast majority of African-Americans in the U.S. South were enfranchised and they voted and they voted in very high numbers. And we had what were, in effect, multiracial democratic elections across the South briefly. But two things happened. First of all, uh, as we were discussing earlier, there was an intense authoritarian reaction, in this case, on the part of the Democratic Party in the South which used a combination of terrorist violence, election fraud, and, and thuggery to seize back power across the South. But also, our country's uh, what we call counter-majoritarian institutions, institutions that, that were set up in many ways to protect and even empower partisan minorities, mm. were used to slowly water down, dismantle, roll back a number of the Reconstruction-era reforms. The Supreme Court knocked down key elements of civil rights legislation and other, and other reforms in the 1870s. And the filibuster prevented the adoption in, in the late uh, 19th century of a federal electoral uh, reform that, that would have created a, a set of oversight mechanisms that might have prevented a slide back into Jim Crow. So you have an you have a, a an authoritarian minority party, the Democrats, reacting violently to multiracial democracy, overturning democracy, establishing nearly a century of authoritarian rule in the South. But you also have a set of institutions that facilitate that. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those things are happening today in the United States. In the book, you make the argument that uh, Americans were exhausted and they started to forget the lessons learned from the Civil War in the immediate post-Reconstruction period. And, and you all write— let us not repeat our past mistake of turning away from public life out of exhaustion. That is parallel. I mean, there is a strong parallel there. Right. If you post on social media, you're going to get harassed and threatened. You're going to get bullied out of the public square. You're going to get confronted by your neighbor. There's all of those factors that cause people to retreat. Yeah. And, and in addition to that, though, the sense that nothing can really change. And mm. so, you know, a sense that, you know, the issues that you feel passionately about, you know, in present day gun control climate change, a minimum wage. These are issues that are broadly popular if you ask Americans in surveys. But I think you also ask, you know, Americans also have this deep sense that, you know, nothing can change. And, you know, the thing about this kind of sentiment that nothing can change is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Totally. If you think nothing can change, then nothing will change. And so that's one of our goals in the book is to try to remind people that this is our democracy and we can can make of it what we want. That's the optimistic part. not so optimistic. You also compare the current moment uh, in the U.S. to France before the Nazi occupation. Um, it's a controversial comparison. Uh, what happened to loyal Democrats in power then? Um, what do you see as the parallels and how can we learn from them? 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is there's a remarkable event that took place in France in, in early 1934. You know, France was a longstanding democracy at this point. Um, and there was a lot of growing dis- disaffection with politics, sense that the political system was too corrupt and, and so on. And so the, the uh, one early uh, morning, February 6, 1934, in front of the parliament building, a, a bunch of veterans groups, militias, right-wing militia groups gathered to express their outrage at the government. As the inside the parliament, they were counting up the ballots to vote on a new prime minister. These guys were, you know, sort of armed thugs out in the streets, armed with poles with razor blades at the end. And, and, and the police showed up to try to protect the parliament building. Members of parliament freaked out about chance, you know, mm. they're, they're going to hang the deputies, hang the deputies, uh, had to escape out the back door. Uh, that the, the thugs didn't really make it in. But it, it it gave the political system a fright, and the prime minister resigned, and a new prime minister, more right-leaning prime minister, came in. What was so striking about all of this, though, you know, there's always attacks on parliaments. This happens from time to time in democracies, as unfortunate as it is. What's critical is how do mainstream politicians respond to it? And one mm. of the things that was so striking about France in 1934 was that there were center-right politicians inside the parliament building who were in on the effort to, to organize this. They were sympathetic, broadly sympathetic. To the calls of the protesters, they they knew it was going to happen, and so when there was an effort to hold these guys to account, they, instead of doing the right thing, which is to distance yourself from violence, they sort of turned a blind eye or tried to downplay it. Mm. Um, this this proved lethal, I would say, and weakened the immune system of the French political system because by not holding these guys to account, when the Nazis did invade several years later, you had a whole cadre of people who had been involved in that protest who went on to serve in the. Vichy authoritarian Nazi sympathizing government. So, so the point here is that the actions of political elites in response to these kinds of violent acts is absolutely critical. And it is, it's not, you know, some small detail how politicians talk. You know, it's not empty rhetoric. Just to add to that, I mean, they, it, it's really important to remind ourselves the role that, uh, just like in France, Republican Party leaders play in this. A never Trump group called the Republican Accountability Project uh, evaluated the public statements of 261 Republican sitting members of Congress in 2020, 2021, how mm-hmm. they responded to the election results. They found that 85%, the overwhelming majority of Republicans, either questioned the legitimacy of the election or said nothing at all. Only 15% of Republicans sitting in Congress, senators and House members, we're willing to come out and do what all Democrats have to do, small which is small D Democrats. Small yeah. D Democrats. Sorry, I forgot we're on a uh, <laughs> podcast. That um, the, the the cardinal rule in in a democracy is you publicly accept defeat. Only fifteen percent. It was Liz Cheney and a handful of other people who actually accepted the results of the election, and that's that either misinformation or silence of Republicans in the weeks after the election is what it what, what allowed the big lie to take hold and in many respects contributed to January 6th. Mm. So let's talk about how to fix the system. Quick break and more of The Professors in just a moment. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back here on Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with the co-authors of Tyranny of the Minority, Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky. So here's what surprised me most. Now, here's the, the, the eye-popping moment as I'm reading Tyranny of the Minority. You all make the argument that the Constitution is not what's going to save us from authoritarianism. It's that the Constitution is the problem. So give us the one-minute version of that, Daniel. Why is the Constitution the fault, that fault? Well, I want to begin by saying that we firmly believe the U.S. Constitution is a remarkable document. Yeah, it's a yeah. brilliant document. Okay. It's, yes, and it, you know, and it has served the U.S. well, but it, that's an important point because the reason it has served us well is because over the last 250 years, we've done the hard work in the United States, as citizens in other countries have done in their own countries, of making the Constitution more democratic. Right. I mean, George Washington, you know, right after the Constitutional Convention said, this is an imperfect document. It's up to future generations to improve it. And so the degree to which it has worked in the past, it's because we've made it more democratic. Women got the right to vote. We elect senators rather than appointing them. What's happened, though, the kind of tragedy of our current moment is for the last 50 years, we've stopped doing that work. We've given up the work of making our constitution more democratic. And as a result of that, has kind of triggered all of the kind of trends that I think we see today. So let's get into how does the constitution entrench minority rule? What are the ways? One thing is that our constitution in many facets, or in our electoral system in particular, favors sparsely populated territories over urban territories. This Uh, is the Senate problem, right? This is particularly the Senate, but it's also indirectly the electoral college as well. And so we have a system that favors rural areas. Now, that's uh, always existed. It's never been a partisan problem before because the two main parties always had urban and rural wings. It is Mm. only in the 21st century for the first time in U.S. history that we've had an overwhelmingly urban party and an overwhelmingly small town and rural party. And so for the first time in history, our rules favor one party over the other. Mm. Uh, give the the uh, Republicans a significant advantage in the Senate and give the Republicans or have over the course of the 21st century, given the Republicans a an advantage in the Electoral College, which allows the party with fewer votes to govern. Mm-hmm. And that's actually pretty consistently been the case in the 21st century. In 2016, not long ago, the Democratic Party won the popular vote for the presidency and the presidency went to the Republicans. The Democratic Party won the popular vote for the Senate, and the Senate fell in the hands of the Republicans. That president who did not win the popular vote and that Senate that did not win the popular vote went on to nominate and approve three Supreme Court justices, giving us today's conservative majority. Had this country had a popular vote for the president, like every other presidential democracy in the world, Had this country had a Senate that was even minimally proportionate to the population that was electing it, we would have arguably a 6-3 liberal majority on the Supreme Court. Mm. That's minority rule. And you all point out that it's not like this in other countries. You know, in Germany and Sweden, Argentina, New Zealand, they've eliminated some of these, you say, outdated institutions. Yeah, other countries used to have electoral colleges. We're now the only democracy in the world with an electoral college. I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah, and that's a striking fact, you know. And so, you know, other countries experimented with it and realized it was a problematic institution, and we still have it. But mm-hmm. that's not the only institution where we're an outlier. We're the only uh, democratic system in the world that has a uh, Supreme Court that has neither term limits nor retirement age. Every other democracy puts some limits on the, the t- tenure and office of courts, which which is important because what that does is it makes it so that, you know, somebody serves, serving on the court 30 years after they're appointed, it, there, there's a kind of 
greater gap between what the public wants and what the court does. You know, right. of course, court judges should be independent, but they shouldn't be totally out of sync with what what citizens want. And so this is also a problem. And we're also we also have this the most malapportioned Senate in the world. That is a Senate that is unevenly biased in favor of small territories, with the exceptions of Argentina and Brazil. You know, most democracies, like to take Germany, for example, have an upper chamber and is in a, in a kind of federal system, but usually they're somewhat proportionate to population. So that is bigger states get a few more seats, smaller states get a few fewer seats. So all of this leaves us in this unusual position where we're the, the most counter-majoritarian, most, you know, the system that's most prone to minority rule in the world. And one might think, well, that, you know, that's fine because we're a great democracy and we're just exceptional and so on. But, it, you know, going back to the numbers we were talking about at the beginning, the U.S. is actually not the most democratic country in the world. We're the only democracy in the world that has fallen victim in the last several years of established democracies to this, uh, you know, the, the kind of event like January 6th. And all of the aftermath. And so we have to stop and think, well, what is it about our institutions that is making us vulnerable? But aren't the laws there for a reason? I mean, what would the impacts be of giving sparsely populated states less power? The, the point is it was a compromise. <laughs> it was deemed by some pretty smart people to be a necessary t- compromise at the time. This mm. was not some farsighted, brilliant blueprint for democracy. It was mm. a second best solution, not not the one that that our that some of our smartest and most far-sighted framers like Madison even wanted. But it was, it was a necessary compromise at the time. The point is, compared to other countries, we had a pretty progressive democratic constitution in 1789. Other countries over the course of 200 plus years have gradually reformed their constitutions to make it more democratic. They expanded suffrage. In some cases, they eliminated or they weakened their, their senates or upper chambers. Uh, they they established term limits on judiciaries. They created more more majoritarian systems, mm-hmm. and we did that too to an extent, as Daniel mentioned. But we've done it a lot less than other democracies. And over the last half century, we just stopped. We stopped doing the work of making ourselves more democratic. And I think you raise a good point though about protecting minorities, protecting that you know you don't we don't a democracy is certainly more than majority rule. But the problem is without majority rule, you have no democracy. And so, you know, certainly the Bill of Rights is there to protect individual rights. We have an independent judiciary to protect individual rights and civil liberties. This is essential for democracies. But the United States, we've gone very far in the, in the direction of, of using those institutions to block majorities from doing the basic thing, which is if you win the most votes, it's not a partisan statement to say this, if you win the most votes, you should govern. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And we have a system today which often violates that basic principle. In our final minute or two minutes, let's let's play fix the Constitution. Uh, you each get a minute to uh, propose a, a, a fix, a solution. Well, one 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 place that we start to just pick up where we left off is we should be like every other presidential democracy on earth and abolish the electoral college and have the winner of the popular vote become the president. Now that seems impossible today. Uh, but there have been many, many efforts, serious efforts to do this in the past. The most recent in 19, in the late 1960s, 1969, 1970, it was backed by President Nixon. It was backed in polls by upward of 70, 75 percent of the population. The Chamber of Commerce, the AFL-CIO, major interest groups, all were behind um, abolishing the Electoral College. It was considered a done deal. It passed overwhelmingly in the House didn't get the two-thirds necessary to um, to get through the Senate. So it was backed by everybody, it was backed by popular majorities, couldn't get through, which points to another problem, which is that the U.S. has the hardest constitution 
in the world to change, change. among democracies. Mm-hmm. So I would start with abolishing the uh, with the electoral college. Hmm. The principle is we want to, we want to take control of our own democracy. American citizens, majorities, the things they care about are being thwarted by our own institutions. And I think hmm. the pathway there is one kind of low hanging fruit in a sense is the filibuster. The filibuster is a kind of choke point. The Senate filibuster. Uh, which requires 60 votes to pass anything through the filibuster is is a choke point that blocks any reform ideas Mm. uh, and blocks things like gun control, uh, blocks things like uh, minimum wage laws. And so, you know, in the Senate filibuster, something that the Senate itself can change. This is not that the founding fathers didn't dream up the filibuster. In fact, you know, there was some reason to think that they would have been skeptical of it. Uh, And it's something that's entirely in the hands of the, the U.S. Senate. That's step number one. And once that happens, you know, people will begin to think that reform is possible. And I think this will generate a kind of momentum for reform where, again, you know, we, we should be hopeful about this and think that we, in order to avoid the kind of catastrophe of 2020 and future catastrophes, we're going to feel like every election going forward is a national emergency unless we change the, the rules of the game. And so we have to begin somewhere. Mm. There's so much more about this in Tyranny of the Minority. Stephen, Daniel, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Brian. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Gabe Caroga. Mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter or shoot me an email anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. Your feedback helps inform the show and give us ideas for future episodes. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.